Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Isaiah chapter 6, to the passage our friend Chaz read for us a moment ago. So today we are kickstarting a new series. We're going to take the next nine weeks and explore together our vision and our values as a church. And I've been asking Jesus over the past several weeks leading up to this moment, how, what's the best way to kickstart our time together? What's the best way to kickstart our series on vision and values? And, and it would be appropriate for me to stand up here this, morning, this evening and and cast vision for our church and talk about who we are as a church, maybe rehearse the history of our church and, and do that. It, it would be appropriate for me to stand up in front of you and to talk about the need for the gospel in our context and highlight needs and percentages and all those types of things that, that justify uh, our desire to make the gospel known in Seattle and throughout, throughout the world. And it would be appropriate also for me to stand up here and talk about how each and every one of us have a role to play in the efforts to magnify and to multiply the gospel through this city to the ends of the earth and maybe just paint a picture and cast vision for your involvement in this thing and for my involvement in this thing and, and how we can be involved in this thing together. But the more I prayed and the more I chatted and communed with Christ, the, the less convinced I've become that that's the route we needed to go. You see, in this moment, we, we do not need necessarily for me to cast vision for our church. What we need is to catch a vision of our God. And there's a world of difference between taking these next few moments and talking about who we are as a church and talking about who our God is. And so if we're going to talk about vision, the vision we need to be swept up in isn't so much a vision for us as people living our lives in the city of Seattle. Even as disciples of Jesus, what we need is a vision of our God. And if we're going to do that, we, we need to consider what A.W. Tozer says. I, I agree wholeheartedly with him when he says that what's what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is the most important thing about us because that, our understanding, our, our vision of God is going to determine the lives that we lead. Our, our vision of God is going to determine the church that we become. Now, the veracity of that vision will depend on a couple of things. The veracity of our vision of God will be, depend upon whether or not our vision is rooted in one of two locations. Some of us can develop a vision of God that is drawn from the world of human speculation. And we can look inward and just kind of project upward after first glancing inward and trying to discover God that way. And, and we can give ourselves to speculating about God. We can give ourselves to guessing about God. That, that's one route that we could take. It's not the way that I would advise so we could see a vision of God that's stemming from, stemming from uh, human speculation and guesswork, or the flip side of that is to give ourselves to divine revelation, to ask ourselves, did God reveal himself to us? Has he revealed himself in a particular person named Jesus, and has that revelation been passed down through uh, the scriptures that we have before us now? And if so, then we have, our vision of God must be drawn from the well of revelation that is the scriptures. And when we do that, we're not giving ourselves to guesswork. We're giving ourselves to grace work. We're considering the God who revealed himself to us so we don't have to speculate about him. You see, if we speculate about God, the images that we 
carve of God and that we create of God just coming from our own imaginations, those images aren't going to be very helpful to people. There was a study done done, uh, several years ago with a group of college students where they were asked a series of questions about what they think Jesus is like. And they were asked questions like, well, do you think Jesus was moody? Or do you think Jesus gets nervous? Or do you think Jesus was kind of the extroverted life of the party? Or maybe he was more introverted. What, what do you think Jesus is like? And these college students were asked a series of 24 questions all geared towards who Jesus is or what they envision Jesus being like. But then after they ran through that first set of questions, a second set of questions was, was asked of them, only this time the language was adjusted a little bit, so it wasn't so much focusing on Jesus as it was focusing on themselves. And this is a study that's been done by many professionals in many places, and the results are remarkably consistent. Remarkably consistent that this study and this questionnaire would reveal is that every person seems to think that Jesus is just like them. One researcher even said the test results suggest that our tendency is to try and to make Jesus like ourselves. Confirming what a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire said about three centuries ago when he said, If God has made us in his image, we have surely returned him the favor. <laughs> in any time our vision of God is drawn from the well of human speculation, any time our vision of God is drawn from human speculation or imagination or guesswork, any time that happens, the only thing we'll succeed at doing is broadcasting to the world an exaggerated picture of ourselves. And that vision can't help anyone. Such a vision is utterly impotent, and it is incapable of transforming any person's life. It is incapable of bringing salvation and redemption to any people group on the planet. So we want to be very careful when we talk about a vision of God, that our vision of God is coming from God and not from us. Human speculation results in impotent visions of God that don't do anyone any good. I have a two-year-old son named Asher, and right now one of his favorite games to play is called the Lion Game. And so every night, Asher uh, growls at me like a lion, and he's ready to tussle when he does this. This is his lion face, and, and he comes at me, and I'm supposed to make my lion face, and we just kind of wrestle and roll around the floor. Now, if you have kids in the kids' ministry, don't be intimidated by my little lion here. He's a gentle guy. He'll, he'll be nice to your kids, so don't be nervous if you think, well, my kid's in the room with that guy. Oh, no. He's a gentle, gentle kid, but we play the lion game almost every night. And we growl at each other, and we wrestle with one another, and it's a fun time, but it never fails. Every time we do that, uh, the next day he asks, Daddy, can we go to the zoo? I want to see the lions. <laughs> and as often as I am able, I oblige to his request, and I take him to the zoo. And we cross, cross the street, and we go to Woodland Park Zoo, and, and I push his stroller up to the lion's den where he can peek through the glass, and together we can watch the lions. And I'll sit back and drink my coffee. He'll hang in his stroller, and it's a casual, stress-free hour and a half worth of entertainment, right? <laughs> We're just sitting there looking at the lions. We can come and go as we please, and, and it, it's, it's a pleasant moment, but understand that when you're looking at a lion at the zoo, that lion is nothing more than an object of your entertainment. And it's so easy for you and I to forget that the object of our entertainment at the zoo is, in fact, the king of the jungle, that he is a powerful creature, and you consider what human speculation does when you just kind of transfer that over, that the zoo being this artificial habitat to which to see a lion and, 
and you think about what human speculation does to God, human speculation has a tendency to set God in an artificial, non-threatening environment, one that can be monitored and controlled by zookeepers, so to speak, preventing God from becoming anything more than an object of our entertainment, easily forgetting that this God that we're talking about is responsible for our very existence, and this God that we're talking about is one to whom we will give an account of our lives one day, that this God that we're talking about rules over the entire cosmos. You see, human speculation results in a God who's merely the object of our entertainment, and it's the type of image or broadcast or vision of God that, that doesn't challenge us, that doesn't threaten us. We can just approach him casually, guesswork about him, and go about our days. But again, that type of vision of God is unhelpful to people because a God who cannot challenge you or threaten you or intimidate you is not a God who can change you. He's not a God who can transform you. He's not a God who can redeem and refine you. So you take that and you imagine the difference in Asher and me if, of our response to the lion if somehow the lion at the zoo broke out of its cage. And I wasn't protected from the lion and being in his artificial habitat. He somehow managed to get out. And as Asher and I are walking home and we're strolling down, down in Woodland Park and we cross paths with this creature who's busted out and we, we find ourselves standing in his path and we lock eyes with the lion. Now, we could in that moment try to run from the lion. Probably wouldn't get very far. I've been told you don't have to be fast in those moments, but... You just have to be faster than the person you're with. Well, I could outrun my two-year-old. Might not be the best fatherly thing to do. So it probably wouldn't be a good thing for us to try to run and flee from that lion. No, in that moment, if we ever crossed paths with that lion and we locked eyes with its gaze, we're not going to respond casually. We're not going to flee. We're not going to drink our coffee. We're not going to go about our days as if this lion is no big deal. No, we're going to respond to that lion with a humble deference. We're going to let that lion determine our next move. We're going to move when that lion moves. We're going to go when that lion suggests that we can go. And you imagine that lion drawing near to me and my two-year-old son and getting really close to us, and we're just frozen there in fear and trepidation. And, and the next thing, he, he could just take one bite and just take us out. But instead of biting us, this lion chooses to lick us chooses to wrestle with us. It's an amazing thing to be treated so kindly by a powerful creature. Well, the revelation of God that stems from the Bible reveals him to be holy and full of glory and power and might and sovereignty. He's a God not to be trifled with or toyed with, but we also find in the gospel a God who draws near to his people and treats them kindly, who is gracious towards them who loves them and treats them well. This is the God that we serve, and so we consider that. We consider that, wanting our vision of God to be rooted in divine revelation, understanding that he's not an object of our entertainment, so rather than toying with him, we're going to live our lives before him in humble deference. Rather than setting the agenda for him, we're going to let him set the agenda for us. Rather than trying to cast him and our image to the watching world, we're going to give ourselves to the process, even painful process at times, of God recasting and reforming us into his image. 
One of my favorite depictions of this dynamic is, comes from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he allegorizes the Christian faith, allegorizes the gospel for kids to be able to digest. And, and you know that in that story, Aslan, the, the king of Narnia, the Christ figure, is depicted as a lion. And when one of the, one of the characters, a girl named Susan, realizes that Aslan is, in fact, a lion. She gets nervous, she gets scared, and she asks a little beaver, hey, uh, is that lion safe? I don't know if I want to meet a lion. It would make me nervous if he's not safe. And then Mr. Beaver looked at her and said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And when you step into this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, you're going to see a man encountering God, seeing God as God reveals himself to Isaiah in that moment. And he's going to discover a God who, who's not necessarily safe, but a God who is really, really good. And as we just kind of walk through this passage, we're going to see how when our vision of God is rooted in revelation, we're going to, we're going to see how our response of worship takes the form of this holy deference, this holy submission, this holy surrender. And it starts there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Where we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, referring to the prophet Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's where it begins in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. How did he see the Lord? He saw the Lord by looking up and looking out. That's revelation. Revelation always requires people like you and me, creatures, human beings, to look up and to look out. Revelation never tells you to begin looking by looking within. So if you're looking for God tonight and if your search is entirely self-centered and it's entirely self-focused, your search for God will be futile. God is not to be found by looking immediately or initially within. God is to be found through his revelation when he compels us to look up and to look out. That's where revelation comes from. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah looks up. He sees the Lord. That's revelation. He's looking outside of himself and fixing his eyes upon this, this remarkable vision of God that he receives. And it's a remarkable vision that happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's significant because Uzziah was a really good king. Uzziah is king, well, was king of, of Israel for about 52 years, according to 2 Chronicles. And his reign was long and prosperous. He was a good king for the vast majority of his days. But, it, but like, and, and as such, Uzziah led the people of Israel into one of their longest stretches of prosperity that the people ever saw. But you know as well as I do how long stretches of prosperity can oftentimes breed a proud sense of spiritual complacency. And that's exactly what happened with Uzziah. 52 years, prosperous reign, the people living under his leadership in prosperity. But that prosperity gave birth to a proud spiritual complacency. So much so that at the end of his days, Uzziah's life did not end well. Instead, his proud spiritual complacency uh, gave him the the audacity to start relating to God, not on the basis of God's revelation, but on the basis of his own speculations. 
And so what happened was Uzziah said, you know, I see the priests offering up sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel, doing what God said to do in his revelation, in the, in the law, Leviticus, and those types of things. And, and he sees this going down, but Isaiah Uzziah, sorry, Uzziah draws the conclusion that he no longer needs their mediation. He doesn't need their sacrifices. And he says, I can offer up my own sacrifices. I don't have to go through them. I can go directly to God. I'm the king. God has been good to me. I've been a good king. Surely I now qualify for another route to God. And, and so one day the priest came into the temple seeking to offer up their sacrifices on Uzziah's behalf. Uzziah's behalf and Uzziah refused he refused to let them in fact he threatened to kill them and in pride he pushed them out of the temple and then he offered up his own sacrifices well you know what happens Uzziah was then disciplined by God God struck him with leprosy and Uzziah's the rest of his days which weren't very long after that moment were lived as a leper until he died and so Uzziah's death represented a holy disruption for a proud, spiritually complacent people. A holy disruption that shook the nation of Israel up. And perhaps Isaiah has gone to the temple to mourn his loss. Perhaps Isaiah has gone to the temple because he's, he's, he's been shaken up by the death of the king and he's wondering, well, what do we do now? And, and in that moment, he looks up and he sees the Lord sitting upon the throne. Holy disruption drew Isaiah back to the root of revelation. It put him in a spot where he could look up and look out. You see, holy disruptions have a way of doing that. And some of the best, some of the most kind, act, kind works that God can work in our lives is to bring holy disruption into our lives. And there's a sense in which you and I, as his people, should ask him semi-frequently, God, would you bring a holy disruption into my life? Now, that doesn't mean we ask God to strike us with leprosy. But what it does mean that, God, would you do something to shake me out of my spiritual complacency? Would you do something to curb my pride? Would you do something to bring me back to the root of revelation so that I'm worshiping you as you are through the revelation you have given to us? There's a guy by the name of Sir Francis Drake. He actually prayed about this regularly. He asked God to give him a holy disruption on more than one occasion. But there's one prayer that he prayed that I find very interesting. And I just want to share it to you. You may like it as well. This is what he would pray. Sir Francis Drake, this explorer and naval pioneer during the Elizabethan era. Disturb us, Lord. When we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore, disturb us, Lord. When the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to grow dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show their mastery, show your mastery. We're losing sight of land. We shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, in courage, in hope, and in love. You know, we should welcome God's holy disruptions into our lives. Because those holy disruptions can drive us back to the root and the rock of our revelation, or of divine revelation. So as Isaiah is back in the temple, what happens? His king has died. He looks up and he sees, well, 
Uzziah may have died, but my, my ultimate king, my true king, is still reigning, still ruling. He's stable, he's secure, he's got everything under control. But not only did he see stability and security when he looked up and he saw the Lord sitting on his throne, still reigning and ruling over everything, when he looked up, he saw a worship service taking place. He looks up and this revelation occurs and he sees these seraphim. It says in verse 2 that these seraphim stood above the Lord and, and each had six wings. And with two, he, the seraphim, covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now that's a remarkable description. When you hear about, when you read about seraphim in the scriptures, don't think about little chubby, fat, white babies in diapers. That's not seraphim with, with little wings that they can float around in. Don't think Cupid. That's not seraphim. Seraphim were fiery angelic beings. Seraphim were such that if you and I ever saw them, we would be tempted to worship them. These seraphim were circling the throne of God, and they had six wings. But notice, as they're circling the throne of God, they do so while covering their faces and covering their feet. In other words, their ability, their qualification to be in the presence of this holy, glorious God and to sing this song to him required covering. Even these fiery, angelic beings could not be in the presence of God without being covered up by something. Hold on to that. We'll get back to it in a minute. So he looks up and he sees these angels covering themselves up so they might be in the presence of God. And, and then he listens to a song. He hears them singing. And a worship service taking place as they sing, called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the language of them calling to one another here and in other places where we're given glimpses into what's going on in the throne room of heaven. We, we see that worship, the singing of songs to God, is something that's happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That means every time you and I gather together in this space on a Sunday and we kickstart our time together, ultimately you and I are not starting anything. When we start singing, we're not starting anything. We're joining in on what's already taking place. The seraphim are singing this song to the Lord, praising his holiness and his glory 24-7. So we don't start worship. We always join in on worship. We're, we're joining in on what's ultimately and eternally always taking place every time that we sing. So you, you see this happening 24-7, but it also reminds us it. It should encourage us to know that whenever you and I sing, whenever you and I worship, whenever you and I praise God, understand that we are not providing something to God that he is currently lacking in any way, shape, or form. When we praise and worship God, we are not praising and worshiping God because he is deficient in the worship and the praise that is being given to him. It's not as though his divine ego has deflated and he needs our praise to pump it back up god is constantly being praised by creatures far more powerful than you and me it's always happening so when you and i worship god we're not worshiping him because we are trying to enhance something about him no we are worshiping and praising him because in so doing we find ourselves enjoying him God is so kind to design things in such a way that when we praise God, we do so not to enhance him, but to enjoy him. And that makes a world of difference in the worship that we're engaging in on a regular basis. 
Praising, singing, worshiping God doesn't enhance him. It is a way for us to enjoy him. C.S. Lewis would talk about this in his little book on the reflection on the Psalms. And he would look at all the times God commands his people to praise in the book of Psalms. And he's wondering, why would God praise this from his people? It sounds like God is egotistical. And maybe he's lacking something, like he's craving compliments. And, but then C.S. Lewis would think a little deeper about that dynamic. And this is what he says. He knows, you know... I think it's because we delight to praise what we enjoy. And the praise we offer not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. God tells us to pray him because there's an enjoyment of God that is waiting for us around the corner as we do so. It's not unlike what I experienced last night when I took my little two-year-old Asher again to the University of Washington's basketball game. And we went to see them play the uh, University of Arizona and number five team in the nation against UW. And we were hoping UW was going to pull it out, especially at the end of halftime. Because the best player on their team hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game. And when he did, everybody went wild because everyone thought the game was going to be over before the halftime even arrived. And so it was a very exciting moment. And when that happened, everybody in the arena went wild. Everyone started cheering. Everyone started clapping. And and I'm sitting there with my son in my lap, and I'm wanting to join in the revelry. But Asher's in my lap, and so my only option there is to just kind of dump him out of my lap and jump up and start high-fiving everyone else. But I didn't want to dump my son on the floor, so I'm sitting there, and I felt like my joy in that moment was kind of suppressed. It wasn't fully expressed. I wasn't able to bring my enjoyment of that moment to completion because I wasn't able to stand up and give Sam Hartman a high five. I wasn't able to point and laugh at the Arizona fans to my right. Now, Arizona was, they did end up winning the game, but that's neither here nor there. In that moment, my joy was subdued. I I wanted to express it. I wanted to join everyone else in praising that moment. And in so doing, my enjoyment of the game would have been brought even, uh, would have been brought to completion. So understand, every time you and I praise God, we worship God, we join in singing the seraphim's song, we do so not because we're contributing to God something he is currently lacking, we do so finding our joy completed in the process. This is how good our God is, that he would design us in such a way when we praise, and when our praise is thrown his way, our praise is brought to its ultimate completion, its ultimate consummation, it is brought full circle. It's a wonderful thing that we do when we worship our God. But notice what they're singing because it's, there's still more here in verse 3. It says, in one call to another, and notice what they're talking about. They're talking about the holiness of God. They're talking about the glory of God. That's what they're singing about. And the language suggests that this is what they're always singing about. They haven't, they're not moving on to another song. They're infatuated with God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They are affirming God's incomprehensible nature. They are affirming God's unique person. They are affirming God's exalted status in the universe. Anytime you read in the Hebrew Scriptures or in the Old Testament, you read repetition where a couple of words are put back to back. It's not an error on the writer's part or anything like that. Anytime you see repetition in the Old Testament, it's a way the writers used to uh, depict the superlative. It was how they maximized their use of language. You and I would use exclamation points or some kind of emoji, or we would just put everything in all caps to let people know we're excited about what we're talking about. The Hebrew writers would repeat themselves. And so for them to say, holy, 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 that was a maximum expression. They couldn't say it any 
more full to ascribe and to suggest that the seraphim were rejoicing in the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. Maximizing that dynamic. And, and you think about that. You've got to understand what the holiness of God is. It's a remarkable song that the seraphim are singing because this is the only time you see three attributes or characteristics listed like this. You never see love, love, love. You never see mercy, mercy, mercy. You never see righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. You never see justice, justice, justice. You see holy, holy, holy. Why is that? Well, it's because holiness is the chief characteristic of who God is. Holiness isn't just one slice of God's character to be added in the circle with all the rest. Holiness, to say God is holy is to affirm that holiness, this uniqueness, is the summary designation of everything that God is in contrast with everything else in creation. In other words, we cannot understand anything about God unless we get holiness, uniqueness. His love is not like our love. His love is a holy love. His justice is not like our justice. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is not like our wisdom. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Holiness qualifies all of his other attributes. And so this is what the seraphim are singing in. They're celebrating the holiness of God. And it's a beautiful moment because as they do so, understand that if you and I ever join in on that song and we start rejoicing in the holiness of God, understand that that's one description of God that initially doesn't do anything for us. It would make sense for you and I to sing about God's love because we benefit from the love he gives us. It would do our hearts great good to sing about his mercy because we experience his mercy when he forgives us or his comfort when he comforts us in our sufferings. But to sing about the holiness of God, that's the type of worship that says, God, I'm worshiping you for who you are and not necessarily for what you can do for me. There's no exchange when you worship God for his holiness. Holiness is the type of worshiping God for his holiness is the type of worship that happens on the basis that's entirely God-focused. It's entirely God-centered. It's entirely God-infatuated. And the seraphim are celebrating God's holiness, his uniqueness, his otherness, his incomprehensibleness. This is what they're rejoicing in. And we would do well to rejoice in it too. Because if we ever get to the point in our worship where we're responding and celebrating his holiness, that means your worship is moving to the point where you're worshiping God for who he is and not simply for what he's done for you. Now, we certainly worship God for what he's done for us. But I'm just saying there, there's a moment when sometimes we ascribe the holiness, holiness to God. We are worshiping him in a unilateral fashion. There's no exchange. There's no discernible benefit immediately from his holiness for our lives. If anything, his holiness is a threat to us. His holiness intimidates us. His holiness is a challenge to us. This is why Isaiah responds the way that he does. He sees this happening, and what's his response? His response isn't, wow, yay. His response is, whoa. His response was, I'm in trouble. Because God is holy and I'm not. God is unique and I'm just like all these other people who don't love him very well and don't trust him all the time and don't worship him as he's worthy of. I'm like everybody. God is holy. Woe is me. 
And that's exactly what he says in verse verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But do you see the flow from the passage? It all begins with Isaiah looking up and seeing God, and in the process of looking up and looking out, that's when he comes to a, a more true understanding of who he is. Not because he started with himself, but because he started with God. You start with God, and then you start seeing yourself rightly. And so Isaiah looks up, he sees God, and it levels him. He's laid low, saying, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So mixed in this language is fascination and fear. Fascination and fear nestled and woven together in Isaiah's response in this text. And he says, I am lost. Another way of translating that word is I am undone. I am, I am coming apart at the seams. I am melting before this holy God. And it's an interesting transition in his life that he says, woe is me. Because what happens is when you and I give ourselves to divine revelation, when we look up and we look out and we accept what God says about himself in Jesus and what he says about himself in the scriptures, when we accept that, when we believe that, all of a sudden we're no longer in a position to blame everybody else for what's wrong in the world. We have a tendency to do this, don't we? We point out what's wrong with everybody else, but we exclude ourselves. We, in our proud spiritual complacency, we assume everybody else may need a Savior, but we might not be the ones who need a Savior. We've kind of got things under control. We're good moral people. We recycle. We do all that we're supposed to do, right? That's how we are. We Democrats blame Republicans. Republicans blame Democrats. Baby boomers blame millennials. Millennials blame baby boomers. Say that three times fast. Parents, husbands blame wives. Wives blame husbands. Children blame parents. We blame everybody else and we exclude ourselves from the problem. And if you look back in the book of Isaiah, check out Isaiah chapter 5. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, what you have there is a series of times where Isaiah says what? Woe is you. And he's standing back and he's pointing out what's wrong with everybody else. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But when he finds himself in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he's no longer saying, woe is you. He's saying, woe is me. I'm not excluded from the problem. I'm a part of it too. We're all lost. We're all undone because God is holy. God is glorious and we're not. So he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, I find it interesting that he would say that, right? He points out the problem being his lips. And the reason why that's significant is because Isaiah's a prophet. His lips represented the way in which he served God. His lips were his pride and joy. This would be like Felix Hernandez talking about his arm, his arm being his pride and joy. This would be like Dr. Strange and his relationship with his hands before the car wreck, if you've seen that movie. And he, his pride and joy is, is hurt in the wreck. Well, when he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, he's pointing out the very place in which he should be justified before this holy and glorious God. Saying, I'm a prophet, I'm a spokesperson, I've been serving you, I've been speaking your word, this is who I am. But yet here in this moment when he's standing before God, his lips are identified as part of the problem too. I am a man of unclean lips. And that's not because he has a beard and food gets all caked in it like mine does and my wife's constantly saying, wipe your mouth. And it's not that type of uncleanness. It is saying, look, even my strengths are inadequate before God. 
no matter how strong I am, no matter how blessed I am, no matter how gifted I am, no matter how good I am, ultimately our assets morally are liabilities when it comes to you and I standing in the presence of a holy and glorious God. The contrast between God and us is too stark otherwise. And then look at how he describes it. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That word unclean is a graphic word. It's a word that speaks to defilement. It is a gross word. It's used in two other places in the Old Testament. One of those is used to describe the types of rags a leper would wear. A leper like Uzziah, who would wrap his face with cloth, covering his leper boils. And and these rags would would absorb the pus and the blood and the contagious disease. That's what unclean refers to. That's the image that that word describes. And then there's one other place in the Old Testament where it talks about the rags used in a women's menstrual cycle and to help with that process. It's that type of image. It is a graphic word when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's A word, it's a description that would be later explicitly stated on Isaiah chapter 54 when Isaiah is talking about his righteousness. And what does he say about his righteousness? What does he say about his strengths? He says, my righteousness is like filthy rags. That's what my righteousness is. Even our strengths in the presence of a holy God are inadequate. And so when Isaiah discovers this, when he sees God and his holiness and his glory, the contrast between the two is too, too much. So he's starting to fall apart. He's coming apart at the seams. He's realizing that he can't point to his lips as a reason for him to be justified before this God. Just like you and I can't point to our lives and say, this is why we should be justified before God. We're good people. We're moral people. We love others. We treat people kindly. You can't point to that stuff when you're in the presence of a holy God. Why? Because your life lacks covering. Your strengths and your gifts cannot cover you appropriately in the presence of God. So Isaiah's got a huge problem. He sees this and he's melting, he's coming apart. But then look at what happens. Verse 6, Isaiah's done for. Isaiah's got a huge problem. He's in the presence of God and he's uncovered. So he's saying, woe is me. Nothing I do is good enough to warrant the, the me being here and And then look what happens in verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You know another word for that word, atoned? Covered. Your sin is covered. When God dispatches this seraphim to go and to take this coal from the altar and apply it to Isaiah's lips, he, it, he hears, look, God, it's as though God is saying, look, I, I know you, you, you can't be here, but I've got you covered. I've got you covered. But again, notice where Isaiah's covering comes from. It's not just blanketly given. It's not just saying, okay, God is gracious, all is good. His covering comes from a burning coal that was taken from the altar. That altar is the place where the high priest would sacrifice lambs for the forgiveness of people's sins. 
What would have gone down on that altar, since it's still smoldering, since it's still hot, it might have been very soon where a priest came into that space and took a lamb and put it on the altar and beneath the lamb's feet or a bunch of coals spread out and, and the priest would put his hands on the lamb and ask God to forgive us our sins and to take our sins away and to cover his people. And after praying that prayer, he would then take a knife and slit the lamb's throat. And blood would spill out of the body of this lamb and he would be sacrificed on the altar and the blood would pour out of the lamb and onto these coals. And these coals would be lit on fire and that fire would consume that offering. That fire would consume that sacrifice. So the fact that Isaiah's lips are being touched with a burning coal from that altar, it means that a sacrifice has already been rendered. Since the lamb has been slain, Isaiah's guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for. God's got him covered. Now you hold on to that, and you don't have to think very deeply to get to the gospel, do you? You think about Jesus stepping onto the scene in Galilee when his cousin John the Baptist recognizes him. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one who's come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Behold the one who's come to cover us. Behold the one who's come to atone for our sins. And that's precisely what Jesus would do. Living the life that he lived only to go to the cross and there die as a sacrifice of atonement so that our sins can be forgiven, so that our guilt can be done away with and our lives could be covered. What Isaiah experiences in this moment is a precursor to the gospel that you and, all, you and I celebrate today. The gospel that is responsible for our relationship with this holy, glorious, highly exalted God. He's getting a hint of it. You and I know the real thing because we look back and we see the Lamb of God who was slain so that our sins could be atoned for, our lives could be covered. So think about that. Isaiah looks up, that's revelation. After he looks up and he looks out, he comes to a better understanding of who he is and the kind of creature he is before God. And he says, woe is me. He's leveled, he's laid low. What is that? That's called humble deference. He's being humbled in the presence of God. But then God in his kindness, in his goodness, he doesn't squash Isaiah. He doesn't leave Isaiah to ruin. Instead, he comes to him and he comes for him. And he does for Isaiah what he could not do for himself. He atones and covers his sins. And you think about your own worship. You think about our worship as a church. How does it begin? Our worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. God reveals himself and we respond. We respond with humble deference, saying, God, you are God, we are not. We're trusting you and your ways. And if you say this about me, it must be true. If you say I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. If you say I'm, my righteousness isn't good enough, my righteousness isn't good enough. So we have a problem. And then we listen to God say, now run to Jesus. Just as God dispatches this angel in this text, the father dispatched his son to live a life that you and I could not live, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to rise from the grave so that one day we might rise from ours. This is the God that we have, a God who isn't safe, but he's good. A God who would do this for us and, and Isaiah's experiencing it and then what goes down? He's, his, everything's covered in his life and there he finds himself so close to the throne of God that he overhears a conversation and, and the conversation goes in verse 8 and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and then I said with those same lips that were just once unclean with those same lips Isaiah says here I am I send me he says I want to go 
I want to broadcast to the watching world what you're like. I want people to know you're holy. I want people to know that you are glorious. I want people to know that you are sovereign and you are good. I want people to know your grace and your mercy. Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. So there you get the rhythm of the text. Look up, laid low, lifted up, let's go. And ultimately, that's the rhythm of our worship. We look up. We're laid low, humble deference. We're lifted up by the grace of the gospel. And then we say with Isaiah and many men and women all throughout the history of God's people, let's go. Let's go represent this God. Let's go honor this God in what we say and do. Let's go point people to what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the mission that we are thrust into as a result of the worship that we're engaging in. So I can encourage you to consider this dynamic and, and I hope that you can rejoice in the fact that the gospel has the power to turn our woes into wows, to bring us into this worship that, is, that brings our enjoyment of the God who made us to full completion. So what does this have to do with the vision of our church? Everything. The vision of our church is only as strong as our vision of God. And if we get this dynamic, then in our worship, what are we going to do? We're going to magnify the gospel. We're going to magnify the gospel every time we come together, every time we scatter together. We're going to magnify the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might have a felt sense of your holiness and your glory. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might be given a felt sense of our own uh, inadequacy apart from Christ. God, I pray that you would give us a felt sense of, of where we need Jesus, and I pray that you would give us a felt sense of your grace, that we would turn our eyes towards Jesus, see him crucified and risen, so that our sin may be atoned for and our guilt done away with. I, I pray, God, in that, in that as well, you would give us a felt sense of, our, of the privilege it is to represent you to the watching world. And to say with Isaiah, let's go, let's magnify the gospel, let's multiply the gospel, let's do that through this city to the ends of the earth. God, would you make that a reality in each and every one of our lives, in Jesus' name, amen.